The year was 2011. And Sarah and I had been preparing to leave my job as a pastor in Sydney and then raise the support that we needed to move to Auckland and start a church called Auckland EV. I was away at at a pastor's conference with people from the denomination that I was a part of in Sydney and kind of letting people know our plans. A little bit of a marketing kind of moment. You're there, you're kind of amongst your friends going, hey, we're moving to Auckland, we'd love you to pray for us and support us financially as we head out uh, there. It was at that exact moment as I'm there, as we're kind of building up the courage to go, yeah, let's do this. Let's be all in for Jesus and move to another country that I got a phone call, a phone call that produced in me one of those what I call unexpected moments. It was Sarah and she only said two words and it changed how I felt about everything. She said, I'm pregnant. Here we were, about to move countries, about to kind of leave. And really, we only knew a couple of people in New Zealand. And then we'd be starting a brand new church with just eight people at the beginning. And we'd be moving whole countries, leaving family behind. And I'm like, whoa, this wasn't the plan. We don't want to be doing that. Like, and three months in, have a child in a new country where we don't even know if they have running water, right? (laughs) No, no, we did. We'd been here. It was great. And we love that experience. And we love Amy. She's awesome. But it just wasn't part of our plan at that point. Unexpected moments happen all the time in life. It's true, they vary in significance, but life is full of unexpected moments. Like Brexit. Who expected that? (laughs) Seriously, any hands that were going, yep, I knew that was going to happen. See, what is going on? Why are they leaving the European? I have no idea. Just like, guess what? We're out. Where have they been at that moment? And then you hear about Trump. I'm like, whoa, what is going on? Who is that guy? And then, kind of the pinnacle of it all, I hear on Friday that Sri Lanka beat Australia in the cricket. (laughs) Unexpected, right? That should not be the case. Anyway, there are so many things in life that are just unexpected. And this morning was a clear example of that. This is the introduction that I started with, and then suddenly my notes disappeared. I'm like, that's unexpected. And everyone's like, truly. And then we get kicked out of the cinema because there's a fire. These things happen all the time. And what they tell us is the world that we see around us and the way that we see it is often not in line with reality. You get that, right? Quite often reality looks a little different than what we expect. And these unexpected moments kind of come in and realign us with reality. They help us to see the world as it really is. Unexpected moments are great at doing that. Now, it should tell us a couple of things. There's a few things we ought to learn from these unexpected moments in life. Number one, we need to have a right amount of caution in our planning. Not everything we think will happen will actually happen. So we need to approach planning in life, not going, well, I know this is going to happen for sure, but with a a right amount of caution. Number two, it ought to give us a humility in the way we see the world. More often than not, we don't have all the answers. We can actually be wrong. We should have a humility about the way we see the world. But not only the way we see the world, number three, our view of ourselves can be wrong as well. Ever had a moment where you thought you came across one way, but you came across a very different way? Unexpected moments help us to see that, well, we can be very different than what we think. What I want us to see today is an unexpected moment in the history of humanity. An unexpected moment that offers for us a corrective. A corrective to 
bring us in line with what reality is actually like. See, for the past two weeks, we've been following the life of a man called Jesus. Uh, we've been seeing his life through the eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts that have been collected by a doctor called Luke. And in the last two weeks, we've been a fly on the wall at a dinner party with the leading religious leaders of the time and Jesus. We've heard all sorts of things in the topic of conversation that have been amazing. That, that Jesus is bringing in a banquet beyond death's door that will last forever. The death of death itself, death's end is coming and Jesus is the one that will bring that. And access to that banquet, access to life that lasts forever comes only through accepting the invitation of the king. Jesus has been painting so many great things in the future. But the very next thing Luke records for us after laying out that amazing picture is not an intimate dinner party but a scene of vast crowds flocking to Jesus. In this scene, Jesus isn't just talking to a small room of people, to his disciples. He's talking to a crowd about becoming his disciple. He's not just talking to a room full of disciples. He's talking to a crowd about becoming his disciple. Now, it's important for us to work out what is a disciple. You hear that word thrown around if you're in Christian circles. If you're not, you're like, it's just weird. Uh, what is that? We don't really use it very much. A disciple in the New Testament was someone who sought to be like the one they followed. Uh, to not only learn from them, but to model their life off them. Uh, someone who wanted to follow their leader and be like their leader. Here in this section in Luke, the crowds come in their masses. And they come to hear Jesus address them about what it means to be a disciple. The question isn't, what is Jesus saying? The first question that should come to us is, why were they coming to him? Why were these big crowds flocking to Jesus? Now, in one sense, great crowds is exactly what you'd expect. So far in Luke's account of Jesus' life, we hear what Jesus has done. He has healed the sick. He has stopped evil in its tracks. He's fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Like, that's good economy, right? It's even better than two-minute noodles. Like, it's amazing. He's claimed to restore people's relationship with the God of the universe. He's claimed to be the one who would bring an end to death itself. And just last week, invited people to come and enjoy the blessing of God. Who wouldn't want to come to Jesus? If that's true, if he's actually this guy... Who wouldn't want to come to him? What we need to think through for a moment is why were they coming to him? Did they just want to watch what happened next? Were they amazed at the amazing acts that had gone on? Were they kind of like a a bunch of people, a crowd standing around the street performing clown? You know, the ones they're in the middle of the kind of the square and they're doing these cool tricks and crowds gather around like, what's going to happen next? He's going to eat the sword. You're like, whoa, is that what will happen? People are kind of standing there going, what will this Jesus do next? What will he be like? What was it that these people had seen in Jesus that meant that they flocked to him? I think Luke puts this here to beg the question of all of us. What brings you to Jesus? Why have you come to him or come along to find out more about him? What is it about Jesus that makes you go, Oh, I want to know more. What do you want from him? Across the globe, many 
many people come to Jesus. There's no doubt about that. And they come for a whole host of different reasons. To gain life or a better life. To seek the blessing that he brings. Perhaps to seek healing. To seek his teaching. To get wisdom from this man. Maybe to enjoy a way of life that I'd argue is the most livable way of life that we've got amongst all the different worldviews and religions on offer today. Christianity has brought so much blessing to our world. Do remember that our views of justice, of love, of sacrifice, they're all shaped by this man, Jesus. Science, education, social justice, the abolition of slavery, all came about by people who had come to Jesus. Jesus was an incredibly influential man. And you'd expect there to be crowds following him. But then he says something that's extraordinarily unexpected. Something that makes you pause and either turn the whole view of yourself on its head or the whole view of the world on its head. In Luke 14, 26, it's not on the screen tonight. You're just going to have to look in the old school, hard stuff in front of you. That's the Bible, just in case you're wondering. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Let me read it again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. When you hear those words, there's a sense of shock, isn't there? Unexpected words coming from Jesus. We should be shocked. These words provide for us an unexpected moment. A moment that will either challenge the way we see Jesus, maybe he's not that good after all, or challenge our previously held convictions about everything. Relationships, ourselves, our possessions. My hunch is that when you came to church tonight, that the way you were thinking about Jesus was that he was really someone who's all about love, not hate. That he was someone who's about life, not death. Someone who was bringing blessing, not suffering. I want to say he is. Some of the words that he said in the past, he's the one who tells us to love our enemies. Not just your family, but even your enemies. He's the one who says in John 10.10, I have come so that they might have life and have it in abundance. Jesus is pro-good things. But what we see tonight is he's changing the way we need to view everything. The only way to experience the good things that Jesus offers is to recognize the preeminence of who he is. Now, preeminence just means the ultimateness, if that's such a word. The absolute, the top, that he, there is no one like him. Jesus is showing us tonight that if we want to be his disciple, if we want to experience what he offers, he must hold an uncontested position in our lives. If you want to come to me, he says, if you want to be my disciple, you need to recognize the extent of what that means. 
If you're here tonight checking out Jesus, the first time you've come or you're fairly new, I want to say what you're about to hear is exactly true. It's great because you're hearing up front what Jesus thinks, but it will be, it'll be a bit out there because Jesus is a bit out there. But I hope what he provides for us tonight is an unexpected moment that allows you to see the world as it really is rather than what we thought it was like. He's going to show us over the next three points that you cannot be his disciple, that you, you, you have not understood Jesus unless he is preeminent over your family. You've not understood Jesus unless he is preeminent over all your possessions. And you have not understood Jesus unless he is preeminent over you yourself. Unless he is number one in all those areas. Now, the point of this passage is to recognize the preeminence of Jesus and the necessity of that preeminence for all those that want to follow him and be his disciple. So let's look at those three areas, family, possession, and yourself. Verse 26 of Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not to be the first among many influences in our life. He is to be the only influence. Now, I don't know what family is like for you. For some of you, you hear this and you're like, whoa, that's, that's kind of terrible. How could someone ever say they need to hate their family? For others in the room, you're like, yeah, that's normal. That's what my family's like. You know, it's just real awkward and I totally get where he's coming from. <laughs> but for many of us, the pull of family is huge. The look of disappointment on your dad's face when you haven't met up with his standards. When you don't do things the way that he would like to do them or, or, or your mum's face. When you make decisions in life and they're just that look of disappointment. I remember um, Sarah talking through what she calls mother's guilt. So as we had kids, um, we've got four kids. And I remember uh, we, we had troubles um, feeding Nathaniel, our oldest. Uh, and so breastfeeding kind of didn't work. And so we decided to kind of top him up with formula, which according to some people is like the biggest sin you can commit in the world. Particularly Sarah's mom. They're like, no, you want natural. We're like, we tried that. It's not working. And, and Sarah's just like, I know it's the right thing to do. The doctors have told me it's the right thing to do. But there's just this sense in which oh, I feel the guilt of my mom saying, you should, be, you should be trying harder. And it was just like this awful guilt that she's under. The pool of family can be huge. For different cultures, there's different ways that that works among us. And you'll know these better than I will. Uh, for some families to go against what our mother or father says is to kind of almost deny our family totally. We easily crave the approval of family. But Jesus says our first influence, our first priority, our first love in everything needs to be not family, not husband or wife, mother, father, child, but him. Now, for some of us, it's easy to reject our family for the wrong reasons. We hear this and we're like, sweet. It means I don't have to listen to my parents anymore. Like, that's brilliant, you know? But really, we're just importing a Western worldview that says it's just about me and the individual. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not from a, a Western individualistic worldview and he's not speaking to a Western individualistic worldview. He's saying in a culture where family matters, where shame is key and honor is, is, is the currency of life, 
You need to hate your family compared to the way that you treat me. Your first love, your first influence, your first priority in everything needs to be Jesus if you're going to be his disciple. Any moment your family causes you to pull back on your devotion to Jesus, he's saying you need to pull back on listening to their advice. It's been a a view of Christians throughout the ages that loving our family is important. But I think this guy called Gregory Palamas from the 14th century, he sums it up really well. Uh, Talking about the command to honor your father and mother, he says this, it is through your father and mother that God has brought you into this life. And they, after God, are the cause of your existence. Thus, after God, you should honor them and love them, provided that your love for them strengthens your love for God. If it does not, flee from them. Who is calling the shots in your life? Is it anyone other than Jesus? Is it your parents telling you the way you need to live? Is it your spouse if you're married? Boyfriend, girlfriend, sister, brother, child? If it's anyone other than Jesus calling the shots in your life, he says you cannot be his disciple. When Jesus here talks about hate, what's that on about? For many of us, we're like, oh, hate just seems to be something in our vocabulary that is so horrible. We think of hate, we think of stabbing people in the eyes with forks and spoons, right? Stuff that's kind of hurtful. We think if someone hates their family, is Jesus saying, go home tonight and kind of do horrible things to your family? No, he's not. What he's saying is, is, is a comparative hate. He's speaking comparatively about the way we view all things. Compared to your love for Jesus, every other relationship needs to look like hate. Have you ever walked out into, the, into a, a clear night sky? You know, when, when you're away from the city and the, the, the smog that's kind of there, and, and you walk out and the sky is just covered with stars. Have you ever seen that? And had that experience where you look to the sky and it's just a blanket of stars. And you're like, that is so amazing. Have you felt that feeling where you feel so small and those stars are so far away and they're so magnificent and you just look up and you're like, wow, that is just something special. Well, do you know what happens in the morning? The sun comes out and the brilliance of all those stars that so captivated you at night suddenly disappear because of the strength of the brilliance of the sun. That's what it's like to see Jesus. Even the goodness of family is put in its place when the sun comes out. Jesus is saying he must be preeminent even over your family. But that's not the only area that he wants preeminence over, that he demands preeminence over. Look at verse 33. Every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Whew. Glad you came to church tonight. (laughs) These are strong words, but they help us have that moment that corrects corrects reality and see Jesus as he really is. Every one of you who does not say goodbye to all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. I thought, how can I help us all to kind of get an idea of doing this? So what we've decided to do, I want to know what you think. Uh, We've got a bucket after the service. So as you head out those doors at the back, we just want you to put everything in it. 
all your car keys, your house keys, your wallet, everything you have, that'd be great. Your pins for all your bank accounts. Put them in the bucket. The clothes that you've kind of got on, it's going to be a bit awkward, but hey, we're all in it together. Put it in the bucket. Jesus is saying, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. The trinkets of life so often capture our hearts and attention, don't they? How often do you spend lying awake thinking about oh, that thing you want to buy, the next MacBook Air, or I don't know what it is for you. Uh, the thing that you, you think, well, maybe I should get insurance. Or you think about the things that we hold, like our jobs or our, our, our position in university. And we're like, we think about these things and they're so important to us. Or a TV that's three inches bigger, that would just change my life. That extra three inches would be great, wouldn't it? Or that phone that's waterproof. You know, it's never going to die. I won't drop it in the toilet again. Or if I do, it'll be fine. I can still use it after I wash it. Like, it's cool. There's so many things that capture our attention. Every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. If you want to follow Jesus, what you need to figuratively do is this. You need to walk back home to your house. And you need to clear out everything that's inside it. You need to walk out the front of your house and put everything that is in there, every room, every cupboard, every, every part of your bank account, and you need to put it all out on the front lawn of your house. And when everything is totally out of that house of your life and you've pushed it on the street there next to the garbage bins for collections on Monday night or Sunday night, or Sunday morning, just for remembering for those who are here, then we can invite Jesus in. Then and only then are you able to say, come into my house when there is nothing else there. And it's after that moment we then see those things. As we, as we see Jesus is the preeminent position in our life, that we're able to go back out and bring in the things that he says, yeah, that you can view that, but only when you view me is most important. Only when you view the world through the way that I see it, for I am king. We need to let Jesus take his place in the house of our life. He needs to be the most important, the ultimate, over everything. And then, when he has that position, and only then, can we prioritize our life through his eyes. Do we bring, bring back in the other blessings which he's given us? But seeing the preeminence of Jesus, viewing him as that one who has first place in our lives, we'll see everything else as what it really is. Well, it's temporary. In the end, it will be put out with the rubbish. Even if you've got a Lamborghini, I doubt it's going to last 100 years. You can enjoy them, sure. But compared to Jesus, they're nothing. They fade away like the stars in the morning. Jesus calls us to have preeminence. He, he needs to have preeminence over our family and preeminence over our possessions. There's one more area Jesus calls to our attention. You're like, is that not enough? <laughs> what else is there? One more thing. Jesus needs to have preeminence over yourself. So strong is his call to worship him and him only that he says this in verse 27, chapter 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now to us in our culture, we don't really get that. 
We don't understand what's happening to bear a cross. Is that what Christians do when they wear a cross around their neck? It's just a heavy thing after a while that, you know, it gets a bit heavy. Is that what's on view? Not at all. Bearing your cross literally was walking to your own death. The one that was bearing a cross was the one who was walking to his crucifixion. What would happen next would be they would be nailed to the, the cross they were carrying, hoisted up in the air, and then die in front of everyone else. When you're carrying your cross, you're carrying your execution device. It's kind of like walking along, pulling the electric chair behind you. That's the image. Jesus says, whoever does not pull his electric chair and come after me cannot be my disciple. Those that walked to the cross were walking to their future with nothing to offer, nothing to hold on to, other than the reality that their very next moment and their life was completely and utterly in the hands of another. It was literally the end of self. Here is the call to a completely new identity. So strong is that call that Jesus calls us to see coming to him as death of ourselves. Death of who we are and what we think is important about us. To carry your cross was to say, I'm going to come to Jesus and recognize that that is everything. Jesus defines you more than your family, than your friends, than your possessions, or even than yourself. To be a disciple of Jesus is to see the preeminence of Jesus. It's to live out the preeminence of Jesus. To recognize that compared to him, everything else in life pales into insignificance. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. A follower. This is how Jesus describes a disciple. In Luke 6.40, you can check it out later, he says this. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. See, discipleship isn't merely, oh yeah, I'm going to learn about Jesus. Being a disciple of him is about head knowledge. But it's about knowledge that changes how you live radically. Discipleship of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus live a radically, radically different life. And I think there are at least five things we can learn about being Jesus' disciple throughout this passage. So let me spend a little bit of time going through these five things. Number one, discipleship is not free. As Christians, you might have said yourself or have others say to you that salvation is free. Salvation costs you nothing. And that's exactly true. But discipleship costs you everything. Jesus wants us to recognize the cost of coming to him. And so in the passage, he shows two examples of people counting the cost. He does it, I think, in a great way. You know, sometimes when you, when you see something on TV and they're like, come and, and buy this new thing, it's going to change your life. And you kind of go along and then you read the fine print and you've got to pay so much for so long. It ends up costing you way more than you ever want to spend. Jesus isn't like that. He says up front, before you make this commitment to be my disciple, you want to follow me? You want to come after me? You want to be a disciple of mine? Let me show you what it will cost you. And so he talks through two examples. The, the first example that he holds out for us is a man who's going to build a tower. He starts out and he's, he's like, I'm going, to, I'm going to build this tower. But Jesus says, you would be crazy 
to start building the tower without working out how much it will cost you. Who does that? If you got halfway through and you haven't finished and you run out of money, you're just going to look like a fool. Be ready to count the cost for the endeavor you're about to go in on. The second example is about a king who decides to go to war. He's got 10,000 troops, but he he works out that the the other king's got 20,000. He says, think carefully before you go to war with your 10,000 troops when they've got double the number. How do you think that's going to play out? Ask for terms of peace while you still can. The two images are saying, recognize the cost of being my disciple. Salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. Salvation costs you nothing, but following Jesus will cost you everything. Some of you might have been told in the past that if you come to Jesus, basically Jesus is just like this, I've said this before, he's like a reverse country and western song. Does anyone here love country and western music? Show of hands. Oh, oh, well done. That's great. I don't really, really love it, but there's some cool things in it. What I love about country and western music is like, it's always about these really sad events, like their dogs died, their girlfriends left them, their truck's broken, right? (laughs) That's what it's always about. And they're like, it's what's really hard, living and working on the land, whatever it is, you know? They're always like, man, life's hard. Some people think that coming to Jesus is a reverse country and western song. Right? Their dog's going to come back. Uh, their girlfriend's going to come back and the truck's going to start working. If I come to Jesus, life is going to look rosy. And some people have said that. Come to Jesus and you have the best life ever. That's not what Jesus says here. Some people think that coming to Jesus is kind of just like bolting on an, an optional extra. I was trying to think of what was kind of like that. Um, and recently I, I, was, I was driving along and I saw someone on a push bike. Not on this push bike. I don't know how a push bike works. You pedal. And, and they're going along, but they weren't pedaling. And I was going real fast. All right? And so this guy was on an electric push bike. And sometimes I think people say coming to Jesus is like electrifying your push bike. You know, life was going along well before. You're pedaling along and it's all going great. You come to Jesus, it's like putting an electric motor on your push bike. When really what needs to happen if you come to Jesus is you recognize you're on a bike. You're not going to be able to fly through the air like a plane can. Like if you want to try and even just get to Australia on your push bike, it's not going to work. You can't get there. It's just a contraption. And what we need to do is not electrify the push bike, but come to Jesus and make your life a little bit better. We need to recognize who Jesus is. We need to get off the push bike called our life. We need to leave it in the gutter where it belongs. And we need to recognize that Jesus is like an outer space rocket ship that kind of takes us to places that we have never been, that he is the king. Discipleship is the Christian life. It's the call to keep trusting in him and not myself. Discipleship is not free. It will cost us everything because we recognize the brilliance of who Jesus is. Secondly, discipleship is not an appendix. You can't kind of just tack it on to an already complete life. You can't kind of say, oh, awesome. This Jesus stuff, you know, it's not just here to make my life better. It's costly, but hey, I just want it as well, like an optional extra. Jesus is saying to us in this passage here, how dare you come to me with an agenda for your life, with an outline for what you want your life to be like, and then try and fit me in around what you want to do. I will not be used. You have not recognized who I am. He's saying, don't come to me because you want a better husband or a better wife. Don't come to me because you want a happy family or because you just want to be a a happier or more fulfilled life. 
Don't come to me because you think I'm relevant, because you think I'm exciting, because you think I'll make you a better citizen, because I'll make a better society. Jesus is saying he will not be used to make a better version of you. You must come to him because you've recognized who he is. He is no appendix to a life already satisfied. When you are carrying your cross, you're carrying it to your death. You don't kind of whack your cross on one shoulder and then kind of get a, a trailer with all your other gear that you kind of take to the next life, right? And pull it along behind you and going, that's, that's life. I've got Jesus and I've got all my stuff. He's saying you die to all of this. To be a disciple of Jesus, you have to be willing to kiss everything else goodbye and place your life totally in his hands. Discipleship is not an appendix. It's everything. So number one, discipleship is not free. Number two, discipleship is not an appendix. Number three, discipleship is not optional. For lots of people, they think, oh, look, I hear what you're saying. And definitely I've seen some Christians in life where, you know, they are the radical out there sold out Christians. But, you know, that's not really me. I'm, not, I'm kind of like your more average punter Christian. You know, there are those that are like the real extreme great ones, the, the kind of heroes of the Christian faith. And then there's just me, you know, uh, people who are kind of just your average punters, people who get inspiration from the Bible. And we come to church when we can. Um, We pray when things get tough. When we're looking for answers, we flip open the scriptures and say, God, what have you got for me? There are not two levels of Christians. Discipleship is not optional. It's a necessity for every single one of us who wants to follow Jesus. You simply can't say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not into all that radical stuff. For there's not a Christian at all. Discipleship is not optional. Number four, discipleship is not conditional. Some people think, just of the way we work in life, you know, okay, so I'll do this thing for Jesus. I'll be a disciple if I get something back from him. And so, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in this position. God, I promise I will read your word every day if you just give me, like, a brilliant girlfriend. Or, you know, the the girl version, God, please just, you know, uh, give me a guy that is great and then I'll follow you all my life. Uh, Lord, if, if, if you would just give me a sign that you are for me, then I'll serve you. If you just make my bank balance have an extra zero, Then I'll follow you. Then I'll do whatever you want. I'll be there. We've failed to recognize who he is and who we are the moment we do that. The moment we think, okay, I'll come to you if you've got something for me. The planets in our solar system, every single one of them, revolve around the sun. The reason that they revolve around the sun is that the sun has the biggest gravitational pull. It's just how it is. It's just physics. They go around the sun because the sun is huge. And that's just how it is. And even a great thing like the earth revolves around the sun because, well, there's just no other way it can happen. It's just how it is. Imagine for a moment the planets in our solar system, if they could speak, right? Okay, so it's a bit out there. But imagine uh, they said to the sun, look, I've got a deal for you, sun. I will, will circle around you once a year if you go around me the other year. 
you know, a bit each, will work out well. It just can't happen. It's impossible. When you see how big the sun is and the gravitational pull of it, there is no other thing that can happen. So it is with Jesus. We're in no position to say to him, all right, if I do this for you, I want you to do something for me. He is God. He made you. He's in control of everything. And, and we, we kind of act as if we are little pretend kings. We act towards him as if to say, you know what? You know, if, if you spin around me for a while and make me the center, maybe I'll, I'll spend some time kind of spinning around you. How about that, God? Discipleship is not conditional. We come to God on his terms. And number five, discipleship is not an excuse I think sometimes some of us in our lower moments can see following Jesus as an excuse to dump our real obligations. We can think, well, you know, I'm, I'm a disciple of Jesus, so I don't need to worry about listening to my family. Jesus says to hate my family. Great. <laughs> I don't have to listen to what my parents say anymore. I don't have to listen to my boss because, you know, I've got to put Jesus first. I'm going to do every. And so we use discipleship as an excuse. As an excuse to be a bad steward with the things that he's given us. As an excuse to neglect our marriages, relationships with other people, our families, our jobs, our possessions, all good things. But sometimes we use discipleship as an excuse out of the wrong reasons, because we just can't be bothered and we're lazy, uh, rather than serving Jesus and seeing how we need to fulfill the responsibilities we have. In fact, by seeing Jesus as the ultimate as preeminent over everything, all those other areas of life actually gain an even greater value. No longer are the benefits of families and jobs and possessions only going to last 80, 90, 100 years. If we have a kingdom mindset, we'll use all that God has given us for His glory to see people come to know Him and to treat Him as He deserves to be treated as the center of the universe. We'll actually see the things that we've been given, the money, the time, the resources, the relationships, as things that we can honor him in and see people standing with Jesus into eternity. Inviting Jesus into our house first and then reordering life is not an excuse to reject our obligations. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple... You need to recognize the cost of following me. The cost over family, that I must come above family. The cost of myself and my possessions. And what we see here is that there's an ocean of difference between a crowd and a Christ follower. The crowds came to Jesus to collect as much as possible, to top up their lives, to turn up the volume of life's goodness. I want more of this goodness. And so I'm, I'm coming to you, Jesus, to get the blessings of God, like an upgrade to an already good life. But disciples, they come to Jesus not to add more to their life, but to let go of it all. Because they've been so captivated by the Christ that they recognize that every other thing in human history pales into insignificance compared to the all-surpassing glory of this man. Is your world too bright and the Son of God too dull? As I sat there this week and reflecting on what this passage meant for me, what was 
God saying here to me, what areas of my life that I need to recognize, that I need to put under his preeminence? I kind of sat there and felt like, well, I feel like we have sacrificed some of that reality of family. We moved to a different country. My parents don't get to see that their grandchildren uh, anywhere near as much. There's friends that I don't get to, that I grew up with, that I don't get to talk to or be around. Uh, there's possessions that we don't have. And, you know, there's a moment there I'm like, I feel like we're kind of doing this. And then it kind of struck me. See, a while ago I was at a conference and the conference speaker uh, said, uh, to, to a conference of pastors, and the conference speaker said that so often people say that their family is sacrificed on the altar of ministry. Kind of a common phrase, that, that, that some pastors spend so much time trying to do the things of God that they sacrifice their family. And you're kind of like, well, isn't Jesus telling us to do that? The speaker then went, but it's not the altar of ministry we sacrifice our families on. It's the altar of pride because we want to see our ministries grow. We want to see others look at us and go, you've done such a good job. And so for our own glory's sake, we sacrifice our families, our possessions, our time. It made me feel like I'm able to sacrifice some of the things that I do because well, in the end, there's part of me that worships myself and not Jesus. Does that mean that I stop and go back to just, you know, not, not doing any of that sacrifice? No, it means I need to repent from the parts of my life that I live for my glory, for my satisfaction, for my position. If I recognize how hollow it is to think that the universe revolves around me, then I'll see how misguided I am. Jesus needs to be preeminent over even ourselves and our pride. In the solar system of your life, is Jesus your son? Is he the one by whom you see all other things? Honestly, as I was sitting there last night thinking through, wow, God's pushing me here on how, you know, I might try and sacrifice some things, but am I really just living for my own glory? I'm like, you know what? I think I need to share this. I need to share this because it helps people to recognize that we need to come to Jesus with him as king and even our pride can push us away. I'm like, I should show how God has been impacting me. And the very next thought that came to my mind was, yeah, then people will say, That's, what a great sermon, Rowan. <laughs> Pride is there again. It is right there going, yes, you want people to, to, to serve you rather than seeing the preeminence of Jesus. Never underestimate the deceitfulness of our sin. We are so self-focused. We were made to seek glory, just not our own. Every time we seek our own glory, our own position, our own comforts, we rob God of his glory and his position. Do you live for his glory? Have you seen the incomparable nature of who Jesus is and his absolute worthiness of praise and glory? He is so worthy that if every breath of life from every man, woman, and child, and animal that had ever existed throughout all human history, if all those breath of life were, come, were to come together and to praise God for who he is, it would still be insufficient. This is the one who spoke and creation came into being, who's upholding your heart right now. Well, there's one more unexpected moment that we need to be aware of. One more reality-altering viewpoint. The life Jesus calls us to is pretty radical, isn't it? And there's a sense in which 
to ourselves and to our family and to the world around us, it can just seem extreme and so countercultural. But we need to remember the reality of who is speaking to us and that he will return. And on the day Jesus returns, there'll be another unexpected moment that will shape the way we think about reality. So the things that seem so radical today, on the day that Jesus returns, will look like the only right and rational and logical response to the man who is God. On that day, we won't look back and go, well, that was radical. We'll be like, why didn't you live this way anyway? He's the king. Have you not seen him? Stop trying to be a planet telling the sun to go around yourself. The things that look radical today on the day Jesus returns will look normal and rational and right. See, Jesus isn't looking in life for cheerleaders. As the crowds come to him, as people seek to follow him, he's not looking for people that are like, yeah, I'm on your team. He's seeking men and women who will follow him, whatever the cost. He's looking for radical devotion unreasonable commitment and undivided dedication to him. So often we think that Jesus just wants to have converts. Converts who travel the world with him and be his people. But he's not looking for converts. He's looking for disciples. See, converts are believers who live like the world. But disciples are believers who live like Jesus. Converts, they're focused on their values and interests and worries and fears and priorities and lifestyles. Disciples are focused on Jesus. Converts, they go to church. Disciples, they are the church. This is what we are here to do. Converts are involved in the mission of Jesus. Disciples are committed to it. Converts kind of cheer from the sidelines going, yeah, Jesus is great. Disciples are on the pitch. They're in the game. There's skin on the table. Converts hear the word of God. Disciples live it. Converts follow the rules, but disciples follow Jesus. Converts are all about believing. The disciples are all about being. Converts are comfortable. Disciples make sacrifice. Converts talk. Disciples make more disciples. A disciple of Jesus who is, is someone who is wholeheartedly follows the life and example of Jesus, who makes his mission their mission, his values their values, his heart their heart. Our disciple is someone who desperately seeks to be like Jesus. It's someone who is so committed to the cause of Jesus that they would follow him to death and back. They will leave their possessions, their family, even themselves at the door and say, I am so tied to him, so convinced that he is the center of the universe, that I will live for him. The question for us tonight is this. Are you merely a traveler with Jesus? Or are you going to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, Jesus says, anyone who does not hate his mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, child, cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Anyone who loves himself more than me cannot be my disciple. Are you a traveler with Jesus? Or are you a disciple of Jesus? Let's pray.